Good morning. I'm Tyler. We're so glad you're here with us at St. Paul's Bloor Street this morning. Thank you so much for joining us in worship. We're at week three in our preaching series on the book of Nehemiah, where we are looking what it, we're, we're looking at what it means to rebuild after disaster strikes. This week in uh, the reading we just heard, we've seen our hero, Nehemiah, leading the people in rebuilding in the face of violent opposition. They are building under pressure, and I suspect that most of you watching right now know what it feels like right now to build under pressure. Building under pressure, that's what we're going to talk about today. If you're tuning in for the first time, if this is landing with you, I urge you to go back and check out the first two messages. Uh, But right now, let me give you a quick recap of how we got here. The year is 445 BC, right? It's four and a half centuries before the time of Jesus. And we're in Jerusalem, where a group of Israelites, God's people, are attempting to rebuild after their city was destroyed and they got taken into exile for 50 years. But now the exiles who came back have been back in Jerusalem for almost 100 years, and their great-grandkids still have not managed to rebuild the city wall. And the bigger problem is that the disrepair of Jerusalem is a sign of the disrepair of the covenant between God and God's people. Now, God's going to be faithful to his covenant. The question is, what are God's people going to do? Well, enter Nehemiah. He's an Israelite who also happens to be a close advisor to the Persian emperor, and uh, he has gotten the emperor's permission and resources to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. This is what Bishop Jenny talked about last week. You should check it out if you haven't heard it. She told us that Nehemiah took a risk, acted prayerfully, and resisted resistance, the opposition that he encountered. And we're going to see all those themes continuing this week. Because where Bishop Jenny left off at the end of Nehemiah 2, they committed to rebuilding. Now we've skipped chapter 3 because it's basically a work log. It's a list of who built which section of the wall and which family they were from. And uh, any reader we asked to try and read it would have quit in protest because it's full of some of the most unpronounceable names. But you should go back and look at it if you've never read it because think about it. This happened. This happened. These are real people who built real sections of the wall and it gives it some tangible feeling. But now we're at chapter 4, and we see them rebuilding under pressure. Well, what did we just hear in our reading? I invite you to take a look at your Bibles because it was a long passage. They're rebuilding the wall, and they come under fire. Okay, There are competing political powers in the region that don't want a strong Jerusalem. They don't want a strong wall, and so they make fun of it. They say, like, oh, if a raccoon ran across it, it's going to fall down. Now, the Israelites respond to this by building the wall halfway up. And that's when the opposition gets pretty serious. That's when the opposition turns from words into violence. And they plot to come into the city at night and to attack the workers and to tear down the wall. Well, what's Nehemiah do? He prays and he posts up. In response to this plot, Nehemiah prays and he posts up. From now on, half the people are going to build And half the people are going to stand guard. And if you're carrying a brick somewhere, your other hand's going to be on your sword. And he puts the most people at the wall's weakest points. And he keeps a trumpet guy near him at all times so that if there's ever an attack, he can call all the defenses to that one spot. 
They work as long as there's a ray of light in the sky and Nehemiah and his men, they sleep in their clothes. It's a picture of building under pressure. They're giving everything they've got. And I think most of you probably right now know what it feels like to be giving everything you've got. And I want to acknowledge that the frontline workers especially, you are giving everything you've got. But here's what I want to talk to you about today. The people are building under pressure. Where's God in this picture? Where's God in this picture? Because he's not in the text. Did you catch that in the reading? Nehemiah prays to God all the time. But here's this first person account. It's written by the actual Nehemiah. He wrote these words. And he never says, God built the wall. God smote the people who were opposing us. No. And, and, and what strikes me in this is how different Nehemiah is from those earlier books of the Bible, the ones told in the third person, which have God just all over them. And those books say, God did this. God did that. He, you know, God's moving all over the place, doing things. How different Nehemiah is from those books. And how similar Nehemiah is to us. Similar to us because as we rebuild under pressure, where's God? Don't get me wrong, I believe that miracles still happen. I believe that God is actively at work in the world, but for us, like Nehemiah, God isn't self-evidently working in a way that everybody can see and has to acknowledge. Right? It's not like the devil has backed up the QEW all the way to Trafalgar as he has a habit of doing, and you really have to get to Hamilton, so God just parts Lake Ontario so you can drive on through. Right? That stuff doesn't happen. So the action of God, the work of God in the world is something that we have to claim. And in the end, it's debatable. We have to admit that, right? God or power or luck or money, privilege, we can't resolve that question for everyone. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can think of the ways in which Christians have deservedly gotten bad press by pointing to something awful and saying, that's God, God did that. Discerning the hand of God is hard. So what's the seeming absence of God, or at least his debatable presence, mean for us as we rebuild under pressure? Well, let's think. Nehemiah 1 began by Nehemiah remembering God's covenant to his people and declaring God's faithfulness to his promise. So where's God in Nehemiah? God is in the fulfillment of his promise. God is in the fulfillment of his word. Okay, did you catch that? Where is God in Nehemiah? God is in God's word coming true. That's where God is in Nehemiah. So that's the principle, that God will be faithful to his promise. So what has God promised us? And the thing is, it's mostly not circumstantial. God's promise isn't that I'm going to be healthy or wealthy or popular. I mean, all gifts come from God. But health and wealth and popularity, those are not signs of God's particular favor. And if those don't come, 
I can't be mad at God for not delivering on something he never promised in the first place. The promotion, the bonus, the new client, the raise, the publication. God hasn't promised any of that. Our success, even my comfort, my baseline comfort, is not promised in God's word. And instead, God has promised us something far greater. What God has promised us in his word is the union of God with us. The living union with God that the Bible calls eternal life. The living experience of the living God. For the creature, that's you and me, to to know our creator. Even for the creator to live in the creature. This is why Christ died. To take away, to destroy the barrier of sin that stands between us and God. And this is why Christ was raised from the dead. To open up the door into the very heart of God. And if that doesn't sound as desirable as the pleasures of this life, that's just because our desires are so out of whack. The calibration is so off. This union with God is the goal toward which the whole Christian life reaches and strains. Right? This is not about your best life now. This is not about taking whatever life you're already living or the life you want to live and giving it a little more purpose, a little more oomph, like turning it up just a click. The promise of God in Christ is nothing less, nothing less than the living God living in you and your living transformation into the image of Jesus in every circumstance that you find yourself in. That's the promise of God, except no substitutes. Except no other gospel. That's the promise that God has made, which means that's what he's going to be faithful to, meaning that's the work to which you've been called. Becoming more and more like Jesus. This is the work of your soul. That's what we're supposed to build, even when everything's falling apart around us. And this is a liberating truth. It's a liberating truth, if you let it be. Because what it means is that the work to which God has called you is mostly not about your circumstances, but your character. It's not about what you accomplish, but how you accomplish it. It's not about what you do, but who you are when you do it. The goodness of God that dwells in you, working its way out in in every thought, in every word, in every deed, wherever and whoever you are. That's the building project to which you're called. That's the work that God has promised to bless. And in this context, when you think about opposition, and there is opposition, it mostly comes from within. The Sanbalat and the Tobiah that we read about or we heard about in the reading from this morning, those parts of me that are opposed to God, the parts of me that loves me more than other people, that seeks my own gain, that, that wants to use others as means towards my ends, That's the opposition to the building project. That's the pressure that comes on me. Yes, there can be adverse external circumstances, right? I mean, things might not be the way I want them to be. 
But I can't blame those for what I do with my soul. If something's hard, and it's hard, it is hard right now, but if something's hard, that's just the context for us building what God has called us to build. So without denying the imperative of working for justice in this world, because we can't use this to dismiss the pain and suffering and oppression of others, for ourselves, when we consider ourselves, for us, the most intimate work is always going to be against the insurgency that's in our own hearts. Our own selfishness, our own meanness, our own lust, greed, gluttony, apathy, pride. These are the enemies who threaten to tear down what God has called us to build. Now, Nehemiah, Nehemiah shows us, he models what it means to build in the face of the opposition that comes from inside our own hearts. So as we turn to wrap up, let's, let's look at that. The first thing that Nehemiah models is vigilance. Whatever I do, as I, as I build, as I live the life that God has called me to, goodness, sobriety, gentleness, kindness, I need to be vigilant against attacks. There's never a sense of, oh, the job's done now. I'm good to go. I'm, it's just all down here. It's all downhill from here, coasting. Because there is ungodliness, there is wickedness, there is selfishness that can sneak through the shadows and cracks in my own heart to tear down the day's work. So vigilance. Half of me is building, half of me is looking out. Half of me is building, half of me is looking out. And vigilance, I've got the trumpet guy ready. Ready to go. Because when you detect an attack... When you detect something going wrong in your heart, and if you're paying attention, you'll see it coming. Like, wow, that was that was gossipy. Like, ah, that that post was unkind. Or like my gaze or my imagination has, has lingered where it shouldn't have been. That's when the trumpet sounds. And that's when you get all of you to gather to repel the attack. To repel the attack. But but how do you repel it? Not by like squaring up your stance and like mm, digging down deep. No. You repel that attack by turning to God. Because here's the paradox. Here's the paradox. You're called to build, but it's God who does the building. You're called to defend, but it's God who's your strength. So in Nehemiah, we don't have a a Jesus take the wheel, let God and let go theology. You'll have heard those phrases if you've been in church for a while. But we also don't have a God helps those who help themselves theology. In Nehemiah, what we see is be ready and God is your strength. There's a verse of scripture that literally speaks to this situation. It's Psalm 127, verse 1. Now, unless, the builders, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. And unless the Lord watches the city, the, the watchman stays awake in vain. There's readiness, but there's also reliance on God. And the way this readiness and reliance plays out, what you can begin this week, even today is in a constant turning and returning to God that Nehemiah models. 
Okay, this is the real takeaway. This is the real takeaway here. Nehemiah is the master of the so-called arrow prayer. An arrow prayer. It's named because it's like a quick shot up to heaven. A quick prayer. And it's so suitable for those of us who don't spend our days on stuff that's overtly about God. Like law or, or business or trades or school or parenting or like even ministry for that matter. There's a lot of spreadsheets in church. And the, the paradigm shift I'm encouraging you here is, is to the quick turning to the prayer in the midst of action. Whatever your action is, a quick turning to prayer. And Nehemiah does this all the time. All the time. Look, look at the text. Nehemiah 4.4. He hears the mockery. He prays to God. He builds the wall. Nehemiah 4.9. Hears the plot. Prays to God. Posts a guard. Prays, posts. No conflict there. Prays, posts. Back in Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 2.4, the king says, what do you want, Nehemiah? And it says, Nehemiah prayed. Now, it did not go like this. The king did not say, what do you want, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, and he turned away and did, went and did a long prayer, a long chat with God. And then he comes back to the king, who he's left waiting, and he says, I'd like to go to Jerusalem. No, what do you want, Nehemiah? Help me, Lord. And he says, I want to go to Jerusalem. It's a quick, whispered prayer. It's probably not even vocalized. It's just turning his heart to the king of heaven. And you can do this too. You should do this. Because the building of a life in Christ is not about tuning into church once a month or even once a week. You don't build a life in Christ by spending one hour a week on God and 167 on everything else. And daily prayer and scripture study are better. It's getting there. And listen, I'm not trying to guilt anybody for what you do or don't do. I want to turn our attention to the fact that the real goal here is not ticking off boxes, but building what God has called us to build, which is a life where we keep on turning to God, where we're living with God from dawn's first light to when the stars come out. And thereby, we join our lives to heaven. Look, if, if I'm laying a deck... Do I put one screw at one end of like a 12-foot board and one at the other? No, that's, that's a weak fastening. That's a trip and fall waiting to happen. I'm putting down two three-and-a-half-inch screws in every joist, covering every, gra- every gap, regular, just so with our prayer and our action. Pray, act, pray, act, pray, act. Not long prayers. I mean, there's, there's, look, there's nothing wrong with long prayers. Go do long prayers. They've got their place, but most of us can't pray long prayers throughout our whole day. So the trick is not letting that inability to pray long stop you from praying at all. Okay, let me repeat that. Don't let your inability to pray long prayers throughout your day stop you from praying at all. Instead, pray with these little heartfelt shots, just the syncopated sanctification, a short, frequent prayer, this tight stitch It binds heaven to earth. Your prayer can be whatever you like, as long as it's from the heart. That's the point. It's not the words that matter. It's the words focusing our hearts, which is what matters. Our hearts on God. But I I didn't want to leave you to start from scratch, so I thought I'd give you two just to start as we close, taken from the Psalms. Okay, and the first one is because most of us are in some kind of struggle. 
It's Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And some people are going to be like, whoa, I don't like that kind of violent imagery. And I hear you. I hear you. The the history of the Christian church makes that a, a reasonable caution. But I'm not talking about violence toward any other person. I'm talking about the fight that we have, the fight that comes to us whether we like it or not, the ruthless fight that we are in toward the stuff in our own hearts that makes us treat other people bad. That's the fight that we're in. As long as we're alive, and life is going to be a battle over that. And we're all going to die, but that doesn't mean you have to lose. Because it is victory if you can hang on to love and to loving people and to loving God in a world that so often tempts you to hate. And the way that you win is every time you have to fight, and you will fight, and most of the time the fight is with your own heart. You remember you are in that fight, but it is God who is your strength. So that's one. Blessed be the Lord my strength who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. But some days you're not even going to have the strength to fight. Some days you are just going to be feeling overwhelmed like it's all you can do to keep everything from just crashing down. The prayer that St. John Cassian said was the Christian's essential prayer in every circumstance. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Here's what Cassian said about this prayer. He said, it embraces all the feelings that can be implanted in human nature and it can be adapted to every condition because you know what it's got? It invokes God. It recognizes our weakness and has the assurance of an ever-ready and present help. Ever-ready and present help. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. You can say that anytime. So there's two prayers, two arrows for your quiver. And my challenge to you and, and to me is that this week you find the rhythm that will sustain building under pressure. That starts with being vigilant, identifying, being real honest with yourself. Where are the lowest points in your wall? Is it, is it despair? Is it, is it lust? Is it gluttony? Is it anger, selfishness? Whatever it is, watch those points. And if you feel them starting to give, if you feel an attack coming in that direction, when you realize you're being overwhelmed, don't delay in mounting your counterattack. Sound that trumpet. Marshal your defenses. Tackle that head on by calling on God. Shoot those arrows up to heaven. Shoot those prayers. Turn your heart to God. He will teach your hands to war and your fingers to fight the battle that you are going to face this week. He will be a quick help in the trouble that you face. And you will get through. You will get through. And you will keep on building in the image and likeness of God that he has promised for you forever and ever. Amen.